This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter offer code GOODMORNING at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. What sound does a rooster make? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Matt. And one of my favorite things about this podcast has been showcasing a different rooster impression each week. I think today's was my favorite. So thank you to the host of our Creative Mornings Austin, Texas chapter, Ben Toma. That was his son, Patrick, along with his pre-K comets class at the University of Texas Child Development Center. You guys are great. Another thing that I love about doing this show is that it gives me the opportunity to speak with and learn from some really amazing people. This week, we'll hear from Steve Larosiliere. Steve runs a company called Stoked. It's a development organization for underserved youth that uses a combination of mentoring, after-school programs, and action sports like snowboarding, skateboarding, and surfing to empower teens to be successful leaders in their community. Mentoring is Steve's passion, and you'll get that as soon as you hear his talk. So, in preparation for this week's episode, I was introduced to someone who saw that passion firsthand. His name is Mazdak Razi. And 19 years ago in New York City, Mazdak started a company called Milk. It was a studio rental space and since has grown into a media company that stands at the crossroads of the fashion, music, photography, and film worlds. So in 2005, when Steve is trying to get stoked off the ground, Mazdak and Milk were creating a lot of content around skateboarding and snowboarding. And a guy like Steve sees this as an opportunity. You know, right off the bat, I was like, this guy's really, really smart. He's not here to just talk about, you know, creating content. And, you know, the idea was very straightforward. He was like, look, mentoring is one of the most important things we could do. You know, what I do is sort of take it even down to the level of sort of junior high and high school, where these sort of kids are most vulnerable. And if they don't have a helping hand, you know, uh, it makes a huge difference in where they go in the world, and that makes a huge difference in our society and ultimately our country. And Now, Mazdak sits on the board of Stoked, so each year, Milk does what it can to support Steve and his mission. Everything from donating their space to holding events or raising money and awareness, because he believes in the mission as well. Most mentorship programs, you have the mentor who comes somewhere, coffee shop meets a mentee, they sit, they talk, Good stuff happens. And then the guy kind of gets up, you know, gets back in his BMW, goes back home. In this case, through action sports, what ends up happening is that, you know, the playing field levels, because usually the kid learns how to snowboard first and the mentor actually falls down because he's older. And, you know, and so, so what happens is they, they end up getting a sense of um, achievement immediately and, and the balance starts to shift. And they form a bond. Since 2005, Stoked has served over 3,500 mentees and has a 100% high school graduation rate, which is unheard of. And another incredible thing that they're starting to see, these kids are growing up. I think that's the byproduct, right? That when you go into this, you don't think about. And then one day, you see all these young men and women now in college, you know, coming back to our galas and our fundraisers and, and 
speaking so eloquently and all right, we all teared up because we're like, oh my God, you know, this kid could be a senator one day. And soon we're going to have kids who have graduated and, and soon after that we may have kids who now run major corporations or run for office. So that's, so it's just a kind of an incredible gift that keeps on giving and that's sort of like Steve's whole thing. It's like he, he can't stop, you know, he's like, there's always one more kid that he wants to save. If I had to describe this lecture in one word, it would be real. This guy is on a mission, and you'll hear that for yourself. Just know right at the beginning, Steve mentions Atina, and if there are any first-time listeners, he's referring to Creative Morning's founder and New York City chapter host, Tina Roth-Eisenberg. So, from Brooklyn, New York, in November of 2014, here's Steve Larosilier on Chance. You know, every time, like, my life has been crazy in the past uh, five, six weeks. I just had uh, my second child, and two days, a day before my first child broke his leg and and so when Tina was like are you gonna do this and I was like come on it's an opportunity right an opportunity is disguised as a chance and uh, my job is to really take advantage of opportunities to be able to help give that to many people so I'm very grateful and honored to be here um, so I um, you know when when I was given this topic of chance I, I it was one of those things that I really had to think really really hard about um, and I was like, because whenever you think of chance, you think about chance encounters. You think about, uh, you know, like you think of somebody and then you see them on the street, right? Or, um, you know, you get that random phone call, right? Um, and, and so I kind of, I, I looked at this definition as like things that you can't predict. Things that are, you know, they, they happen to be good, but it, it's just kind of out of your control. And I started to think back into my life and a lot of my work has been informed by my life. Um, and, and how I got to be where I am today. Uh, and I'm really grateful for the many chances that I've gotten. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of the stories that is to, to the chances that I've gotten, how it had informed. And so, you know, the one thing that I, before I go forward, I want to say is that, is that when you look at chance, if you take the word chance, there are things that happen to you, and then there are things that ha happen because of you, Right. And so when I look at my life so far in the early part of my life, there are things that happen to me. But then it's really, what do you do with that, right? So sometimes it could be, you know, tragic. Sometimes it could be, you know, uh, good luck. But what are you going to do with that? And so uh, the first sort of chance that I got and um, happened around eighth grade, right? I, my family had uh, just moved back from Florida. My father was unemployed. Uh, my, I, we lived on the border of Queens and Long Island. My, my high school opportunities and chances were, uh, were very limited. Um, my mom had just convinced my elementary school principal to let us back into the school. And we were just figuring out, like, where am I going to go to high school? Because my high school options were pretty limited. They were pretty bad. And, uh, a lot of my friends were either like moving away um, during that time, like drugs in my neighborhood was really bad. Um, and so the, the options are pretty limited. Until one day, my mom got a phone call from my high school principal and said, uh, my elementary school principal and said, uh, there's a man named George Donahue and he wants to give a young black boy a chance. So 
Steve's going to get a full ride scholarship to this school, a prep school on Long Island, Manhasset, Long Island, called St. Mary's, and that's where he's going to go. I was like, okay, that's where I'm going to go. And uh, that was my first chance. I remember sitting down in this big audience during first day of school, dressed you know, in my, my shirt and tie. I looked around and I was like, oh my god, I'm the only black person here. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god. And then, uh, and just kind of growing up in a very Caribbean diverse background, it was like, it was very shocking. Uh, and then I realized, like, oh, okay, I, this, is, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to spend the next four years of my high school career. And then I became that black guy. We all know that black guy, right? And so, you know, I wasn't the smart black guy. I was not the athletic black guy. I was just the black guy. And, um, and I was pretty fortunate to be that black guy because I had a lot of opportunities. And so... As opposed to my friends uh, from where I grew up that went to public school, I got a very deep, rich upbringing in terms of, I, you know, my friends would invite me over to their houses in the Hamptons, and I got, you know, introductions for internships and jobs, and, uh, you know, the teachers kind of, because it, it took me a really long time to, to actually admit that I was like that black scholarship kid at that white, all-white prep school. And uh, it took me a really long time to actually verbalize it. Um, there were people looking out for me. There were people making sure that, like, if I was going down and if I was about to teeter over to the edge, they would just give me a little nudge just to keep me on track. So I had a lot of people just to looking out for me. And um, so, you know, growing up, my, my family was... was uh, you know, immigrants, and, and, and they didn't know much about, like, the whole college-going experience. So I ended up graduating, because that's what you do when you go to a prep school and everybody's graduating. And while they have families that help them out with their college choices, my family lack that skill set and, and that knowledge. Who, who else identifies with this? And so this is a very important process, because the decisions that you make while you're in high school really affect what happens in the future, whether it's you know, taking on too much debt or going to a college that's too expensive for you or not applying for the college because you didn't know, right? And so I ended up at this college. I ended up graduating, and I, and I went to this college, and it's completely not even worth mentioning what this college is because I hate them. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway I... Uh, I, I ended up going to this college, and, and I made some friends, and I was really unhappy at this college because it was like I was stressed about money. I, was, I couldn't even focus on school because I was stressed about paying for school. I was, you know, I had like two, three jobs, and I was, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And um, so I'm sitting there in college, and I made some friends, and like it was in my second year, like barely limped through the first one. I had a friend, and he was like, Steve, I got the illest hustle in the world. I was like, yeah, it's going to help me pay for school. And he was like, yeah, it's going to be the best. It's going to be the best decision. He was like, come by next week. So I went by his, his, uh, uh, I went by his, uh, his dorm room, and, uh, and, and, and we're listening to, you know, Wu-Tang or Raekwon or whatever, right? And we're just like, you know, just chilling out. And, and he's like, Steve, you ready? I was like, for what? And he goes inside his dresser drawer, opens it up, and pulls out an application to SUNY Stony Brook. And that was my second chance.
Because oftentimes we live and we go through life just accepting things for the way they are. And oftentimes all we have to do is make a decision to change. And it took from my friend to just say, hey, you do have options, right? <laughs> it also helped that he knew the director of admissions. <laughs> so me, my friend, and another friend, we took the Long Island Railroad all the way out to Stony Brook, and, and we're sitting in the admissions office. We all have bad grades. And she kind of took our applications and just said, here, you can come in. So that next semester, I went to school. And I mean, for, Stony Brook is not too far from the city, uh, but it was the first time that I really left the city. I was, I was able to leave the city. I was able to leave my neighborhood, be away from my family. I got to be around trees and the beach and rivers. And it's like I just felt like I could just be, you know? And then the people that I was with, like I was sitting down in my dorm room just like, you know, doing nothing, probably watching VHS or something, or like, and, uh, and, and my friends and the older guys in the dorm, they were working on their resumes and their internships. And I was like, oh my God, I better keep up. And that was the other chance. It was like, I happened to be around people whose games were elevated, right? And you know the expression, right? Like, you are who your friends are. And, not to, and so I found that myself, I had to surround myself with people so that my perspective was different. And it was actually during that time in which, you know, my friends are all engineers who all had jobs coming out of schools waiting for them, making like 80000 a year, right? Like, I just wasn't wired like that. Um, and so I, 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 and eventually I realized that college is just kind of a, is a scam for you to just show society that you can start and finish something, right? And... <laughs> and <laughs> thank you. It took me a long time to figure that out. And, and then I, I also just realized, too, that um, I should study what I want. So I studied history. And then I actually had an internship at, uh, at Sony, right? So I got this internship. And, and it was through an introduction. It w this was another chance. And so, you know. I applied, got in, I used my experience and of being around different people from high school. I, 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 I got sort of motivated to like be a professional. So I would take the train two times a week from Long Island uh, to go into the city to intern. Uh, I eventually uh, wanted to get a job. They didn't give me a job. I ended up temping there for a little. Uh, but I used that experience to get my first job, right? And we all go through this, right? Like you take one thing, you carry it to the next. And, um, and so what ended up happening was uh, a few years later, uh, Sony ended up being my first client. I started a marketing agency at 24 years old, and my business partner was the woman that I interned for. It's like crazy, right? And so, you know, I did that for a couple of years. We had an office in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, you're just kind of living life. And we all do this, do this, right? So, like, you're making money. You're, you're actually able to, like, potentially help out your family. You're doing well. Uh, maybe you're just living life to just work, get drunk, maybe, right? <laughs> go out to dinners, go on vacations. And your weekends are just, like, filled just buying stuff, like, not really being fulfilled. And, 
And so that's eventually what happened to me. I just didn't really feel fulfilled. And then the thing that I was doing, I just realized like client work, I was like, oh my God, I'm doing somebody else's job, right? I don't have a company, I have a job just disguised by me working in my underwear, right? And so, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I, you know, so I started sort of thinking and I became actually pretty, you know, anxiety ridden and, and depressed and I was just like, oh my God, is this my life? I know I should be doing something more. And then, um, and then I had another chance. I met this young man. Hey, who's heard of Billy Wimsat? Who's, who's read this book? Yeah? So this, this book, so funny story is that uh, I'm taking the G train when it wasn't cool to take the G train. And um, I'm on the G train and I see this man looking the way he looks, walk through the subway car selling his book hand to hand. Somebody selling their book hand to hand or selling anything on the subway, what do you say? No, right? It's like, go on. So I saw him, but I was just intrigued because who's this guy? What nerve does he have to sell this book on the subway hand to hand? So I went uh, and I actually followed him from car to car just to see his hustle. I got, we got off at, at Hoyt and Skimmerhorn and, uh, and I was like, hey man, tell me about your book. And he was like, oh, it's just a book that I wrote, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, all right, I'll buy it. How much? He was like, five bucks. I was like, five bucks, I'll buy it. And so this is a point in which the story changes from things that happen to me to things that happen because of, of me, right? And so, you know, the next sort of definition of chance is, you know, it's opportune moments. So ended up, this book, No More Prisons, really motivated and inspired me. It was kind of like... It talked about community activism, mentoring. It talked about uh, self-education. This guy, he wrote another book called Bomb the Suburbs, which he edited. It was edited by a 16-year-old. He ended up selling 30,000 copies, right? He was starting community centers. He would like collaborate and co-create with young people. It was so exciting to hear. It was much more exciting than doing client work, right? It was much more fulfilling. And, and the awesome thing about him was that um, that book was that like I thought mentoring was like the killer app. And mentoring to me was, was better than anything in the world. And so what I ended up doing was I started to, I called a mentoring organization. I started mentoring for them. I started mentoring foster kids. I, did mentor, I mentored foster kids because my family had foster children growing up. And I was very sympathetic to their cause and to their life. And then I called the richest person that I knew and, and I said, I want you to be my mentor. And he said, what's that? And then I said, I just want to have dinner once a month. And I just want to talk. And then I ended up closing my company. And then I started working for the place that I was mentoring at. And I said, and you have to be careful about what you say in life because you, what you say in life will actually come true. I said, I never want to work for any for-profit corporation ever again. I only want to do nonprofit work and the works that give back to the world. And then during that time, I started to develop a little bit of my passions through snowboarding. And so how I got to this point of snowboarding was that I was working at this organization and that, that itch and feeling of when you know that you should be doing something more with your life, you should be doing it. You're doing yourself and the universe and your community and your family a disservice if you play small.
And then the thing about it and how I even got to snowboarding was another friend who's like, who's a black guy, Haitian like me. He was like, I'm going snowboarding. I was like, that's awesome. How do you do that? And he was like, go to Blades, buy all the clothes and, and come with me tomorrow. So I did it. And so I started, I started snowboarding and I loved it so much that this is all I wanted to do. And I found myself at the point, at the breaking point where I'm on the floor in my living room. I'm in a relationship that I hate. I'm in a job that is not giving me anything anymore. And I was like, if I had anything in the world right now, what would I do? And I said, I will go to Vancouver, visit my uncle, and I will snowboard my face off for two weeks. <laughs> and that's what I did. That's another great question to ask yourself. And if you can do it, just do it. And so my uncle just took me everywhere. And it was like, and I, and I got to really fulfill my snowboard fantasies and, and like fall in big powder. And, 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 my, and, and it was really my last run of my last day where I really was thinking, my God, I really wish my mentee could see these mountains because if he saw these mountains, he would lose his mind. I was losing my mind standing on mountains like that. Like, young Haitian kid, like, what, what business do I have standing on top of a mountain? And so I knew, I knew this is what I wanted to do, and I knew that I wanted to share with my mentee, and then the next thing was that, oh, I should start a snowboard mentoring program. And it literally was that thought. And I was obsessed with this idea. I was obsessed with this idea, and I started writing down everything on a sheet of paper. I actually started telling everybody, I'm going to start a snowboard mentoring program. They're like, oh, that's great. That's nice. Good luck with that. And so I actually collaborated with, uh, so this is actually the, the first program is called Snow Mentor. So I actually look on uh, the Internet Archive, if you could, you could like look on Internet Archive. So this is my first logo. I posted on Craigslist and I was like, hey, who wants to design a free logo for me? And like branding was so whack back then that I was so literal. I was like, it's a snowboard mentoring program. Just show a big person, a little person snowboard. So <laughs> it was so whack. Anyway, so, <laughs> so I, um, I went to, I went to, uh, so I, I, I did it and I started, I got mentors, I got help. I, I quit my job, I ended a relationship, I moved back in with my family at 28, about to be 29, uh, just to start this thing and, um, and then um, I did it, you know, I, I hustled snowboards, I got free donations from snowboards, I sold them on Craigslist and eBay, I hustled uh, like maybe about 20, 30 of my friends, I got other friends to hustle their other friends, I threw a party, and I ended up raising about four grand to do this pilot project, and then we, like we did it. And then what do you do when you do it one time? You do it another time, but in LA. Because like, that's what you do when you don't know what failure means when you have nothing to lose and you've just given up everything that you know, right? Like you just start a new program 3,000 miles away. And actually how I started that was that there's this guy named Sal Masekela. He's, he used to be the host of the X Games. He's a long black guy with dreads. And I was like, oh, that guy that's the host of the X Games, he should probably be involved with my thing that gets black and Latino kids snowboarding, right? And so I called his agent once a week for two months until he called me back, and then I flew out to LA the next day. I, this was all financed by credit card debt, FYI. So. <laughs> And then we got ideas to do the snow mentor and the skate mentor and the surfing. Because like when you do snowboarding, you should do skateboarding and surfing too. So, um, so we did that from 2005 until 2009. And really, 
you know, it, it, I was really just kind of motivated by kids. I actually started to fulfill the fantasy that I wanted. I wanted to collaborate and co-create with kids. I wanted to give kids a chance to just be. I wanted to actually replicate the types of experiences and peoples and role models and the skills that I learned as a young person uh, that, that didn't have, you know, a, a fortunate background. Um, and then a few years later, um, I realized a lot of my kids didn't have anything to do after school, so I started a, a skateboard building program. Right? And so kids build skateboards after school. And actually, in New York City, it's taking place at 11 schools, Monday through Friday, for two hours each day. Uh, and it's really, really, really cool. Kids are actually using their hands. Uh, they're designing. They're shaping. They're building. Uh, it's kind of a very cool lost art form to use your hands. Um, and then you know, when you start taking chances, uh, then you know, it, it, it becomes less about the gut Right? You could still take chances, but they actually you have to take a step back and realize, like, okay, why am I doing this? Uh, and for a long time, I was thinking, why am I doing this? Um, and uh, there's this thing called the opportunity gap. And the opportunity gap is the difference in life trajectory between a low income and a middle class youth. And the thing about the, middle, the opportunity gap is that you could like, grow up low income, go to college, it still end up back in the same place. You know why? Because you don't know anybody, right? Or you graduate from school, you get a good job, but maybe you can't keep it because you don't have the skills, right? Or you're not used to being in terms of new environments. And so, you know, essentially, I'm really motivated by, by three things. One is that the youth unemployment is really, really high. Young kids from low-income backgrounds don't ever get the chance to actually get the skills. Their family can't hook them up with that internship. Their families can't hook them up with that summer job. They don't have the skills to get it. The other thing is that by age 12, middle-class youth get 6,000 more hours of learning and enrichment. So that everything that we all did after school and on the weekends... Low-income students don't ever have that. So summer vacations, summer camps, after-school programs, they don't have any of that. And it's actually a number. It's like 90 grand by age 12. That's a lot of money that low-income families don't ever get the chance. They don't have it. And then the other thing is that, which is absolutely deplorable and despicable, is that, that uh, U.S. Is, has the second-highest youth poverty rate in the, United, in the world. We're like between Bulgaria and Romania, right? Not to diss them, but like... This is America, and equality and, and opportunity and chances need to be leveled. And so what we do is we provide kids with mentors. We give them uh, you know, youth development programs, uh, educational enrichment that increase their critical thinking, collaboration, communication skills. Uh, and we give them internships and career exposure. Uh, and so the organization Stoked is uh, where youth development, we want to close the opportunity gap. And since 2005, that story where I was hustling snowboards, we've worked with 3,500 youth. Um, we have a 100% high school graduation rate for four years in a row. I'm very, very proud of that. Um, and, uh, and we have, uh, we actually add an additional, it's about 41% learning to young people. So it's an extra 700 hours. My joke is that we want to provide a middle-class upbringing for low-income students at a fraction of the cost. And <laughs> honestly, and it's possible, and I'll, and I'll tell you how. So the question to you is, what can you do to give others a chance, right? And uh, so I, I, had, I had this idea, and actually this idea was given to me, and it was driven by this need. So as students grow up in our program, they needed to meet more people. 
right? It, mentoring to me just wasn't about this one-on-one. -on -one. It was about this community. It was at, about the community like, like creative mornings, right? Like you show up to enough of these things and you start networking, you meet people, maybe you get jobs, maybe you like hook up or whatever. Like you get, things happen when you're in a community, right? And so, um, so my question to you is, oh, the, actually before I say that, is that there's two million mentoring kids are being mentored, right? But there's five million kids that need mentors. And then as I actually started to do more research, uh, uh, one of our like, junior board members gave, us, gave me the idea. He was like, hey, you know, networking and like, having coffee is like, part of the like, regular life, right? Like, he was like, hey, let's grab some coffee, right? And so that five million number, then I started to do more research. I realized that there are like 144 million coffee drinkers. How many people drink coffee here? A lot of people, right? So anyway, I started this, this program last year. It's called Coffee Sessions. And it's kind of like, so I'm, ta I'm, I'm taking another chance. And I'm actually launching this project here. And, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's called Coffee Sessions. And essentially, it is you have a cup of coffee with one of my students. Before the student gets to you, they will have memorized your LinkedIn, know everything about you, and they're going to ask you career advice. Remember that first person that kind of gave you, it's like, oh, you should do this, you should do that, right? Remember that person? Well, that's what you have the opportunity to be. So I collaborated with my neighbors, Juniper Jones, and uh, their production company. And so we're, we're launching this project. If you go to coffeesessions.com, it's like you can sign up to just be a mentor. I would just have to say that mentoring is probably one of the most amazing feelings ever, um, to be able to actually feel like you walk the city knowing young people uh, is one of the most empowering things that you could do as a, as a New Yorker. Um, so yeah, any questions? <laughs> we'll take a quick break before we get to Steve's question and answer session to take care of some business. And this week's episode is made possible by Squarespace. This is Sean Evaristo. I am a dancer, a choreographer, and creator. Sean's website experience is a classic case. Friends offering to help with coding and HTML and all that stuff but it just never worked out. You know, like they were taking too long, the response back and forth, it just sucked. But then a friend told him about Squarespace. It's like, yeah, it's kind of a place that, uh, where you can make your own website. And I was like, but you need, probably need to code in order to do that. They're like, no, nah, it's really simple. So he tried it, and he realized that everything he needed to make a professional website, he already had. I've been able to collect a bunch of photos that I like that represent me best. And I've got links to some of my videos. I was able to kind of see what Squarespace can do. And I was like, you're really serious that I can put this information on that and I could do it by myself. And now having a website that he's proud of has helped Sean reach clients around the world. For them to see everything laid out, easy for them to access is like, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen what he can do. I, I, I like what he represents and that's what we want. And that in turn helped me book a really big job. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And to get 10% off your first purchase, make sure to use offer code GOODMORNING when signing up. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Just a reminder that the theme from this episode is chance, and you can browse the complete archives on this theme and many others at creativemornings.com. Now, back to the Q&A with Steve LaRosillier. Uh, sorry, I have, I have a question um, that might be on everyone's minds right now. 
Uh, how could someone get involved with Stoked? And are there any events coming up maybe this weekend, like tomorrow, that <laughs> people could help out with? Uh, yeah, so we, we have uh, stoked.org. Uh, you could volunteer. Um, and uh, we have community service programs. Uh, you guys could like lead a career workshop at your offices. You can um, uh, come into an after-school program and do a career talk. Uh, tell students how you do it. Um, you could have coffee with a, a student. Um, if you snowboard, skateboard, surf, you could do that too. Yeah. How do you recommend making making a living off of doing charity work? Well, you know, a lot of people always ask ask me that, and uh, it's. I mean, I have to bring in more money than I spend every month, and it's the only difference at the end of the year is that when there's a profit, I just throw it back into uh, through to the organization. And so, you know, there really isn't any difference. You can have a for-profit uh, social enterprise, uh, which generates an income, but it has social good. Um, you know, for me, I, it, if I were to do it all over, it, it, wouldn't, it doesn't even matter these days whether you have a for-profit or a non-profit. Um, it's, it's really about the intention behind it, the intention, the mission. Um, and also to you know more technically it's about the the funding so you know with nonprofits it's it's charitable donations uh, with for profit you can actually seek outside investment and capital and so um, none of that stuff it doesn't really matter I, the the game changer for that was was Kickstarter right so like people are more likely to kickstart somebody's idea for like a t-shirt than <laughs> you know like a normal charity you know because they're getting something tangible out of it so. Cool. Do I still speak to the person that, uh, that gave me the scholarship to school? So when we had it, my mom would make me write letters uh, all through high school, like real letters, not emails. And, uh, and he never returned any of our, he never contacted us. We, like, I did outreach. Um, uh, when I became actually a lot more open to discussing, like, you know, high school and my family background, uh, I did some research and I found out that he passed away, so I, I don't know who he is. I never met him. So, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tina. Okay, look, so we're eight episodes into this series, and I feel like we're at a place now where I can ask you to leave us a review on iTunes. Right? So, yeah, just remember that it's Creative Mornings, one word, and uh, thanks. We recently checked our inbox and found this short and sweet answer to our Creative Life question from Susanna in Guadalajara. To live a creative life for me means to be true to yourself and to what you really love. That's the only way to create out of love. Thanks, Susanna. The question each week is what does it mean to you to lead a creative life? And you can send your answers to podcast at creativemornings.com. Next week, we'll go to Creative Mornings in London to hear from Benjamin Southworth, who speaks on an education system that failed him and his desire to change it. What are you actually going to do with the power that's been given to you? What are you actually going to act and make? What are the things that you see as personal injustices, professional injustices? What are you going to do to reorganize and recalibrate and retranspose this existence that we find ourselves in? Our thanks to Steve Larosillier, Mazdak Razi, and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo, with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios, in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. 
Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. One more time. What does a rooster say? But a rooster, no rooster says cock to do to do. You sure?